So last week we did a bit of like an orientation to uh, uh, the liturgy, but we're going to move on to the communion of saints today, which is uh, page 51, starting with question 100. So we've, we're, we're less than a third of the way through the catechism, which is a pace that can be picked up a little bit, but it's going to have to take that. Um, the communion of saints. Let's, uh, let's pray though first. The Lord be with you. Almighty God, whom truly to know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know you, your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal life, to eternal glory, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so we begin by asking uh, question 100, who are the saints? The saints are all those in heaven and on earth who place their faith in Jesus Christ, who are set apart, holy to God in Christ, and transformed by his grace. So we had said earlier in the catechism, actually on the previous page, question 97, that the church is called holy. Why? Because her members are really holy people? No, but because because it's what it's what God says of the church. Um, the Holy Spirit dwells in it and sanctifies its members, setting them apart to God in Christ and calling them to moral and spiritual holiness of life. So in, in, in like manner, the saints are all those in heaven and on earth who place their faith in Jesus Christ, who are set apart, holy to God in Christ and transformed by his grace. Now, this takes it up another notch, which I think is really important to note, that the communion of saints is not simply the church. It's not another term for the church. Um, in, in the ancient usage, it was about those who have um, uh, been transformed. Um, it's, it's about those who have um, uh, placed their faith in Jesus. Um, it's clear, I think, and it's one of the things that's, that's sort of an interesting tension in, in uh, well, in, in churches today is this tension between is the church, the communion of saints, are the two the same, or is there a bit of a difference, a bit of a distinction drawn between the communion of saints and the church? And I will tell you just very clearly, I, I think it's the latter. And the reason is that I believe with Augustine and others that the church is made up of both the wheat and the tares. The church is made up of both those um, who will be saved, the elect, and those who are not. Um, and you might say, well, how's that? And, and the answer is that, that the church uh, has, uh, um, has, an, has a dual identity, as both visible and invisible, as both divine and human. Um, and I think that's at the heart of what the church is, a, a divine humanity is what one theologian says. Um, when we get to the communion of the saints, these are those who have a communion and fellowship in the holy things of God um, and who are uh, sanctified by his grace. So this is a, this is a, and transformed. Um, so this is a, uh, often a bit of a struggle. It's like, well, am I a member of the communion of saints? <laughs> and I will just tell you that part of it is you're here, right? Um, I think that the reality of it is there are members of the church who are not uh, not present, not accounted for, um, all the rest. Um, but but there's, there's an important line to draw as well, which is that um, the communion of saints is not all those who are perfected, right, um, but those who are transformed. And so this is a really kind of a, a, an, important, an important way to go. But we'll, we'll flesh this out a little bit more in question 101 and 102. What does the word communion mean? 
Communion means being one with someone in union and unity. For Christians, it refers to the unity of the three persons within the one being of God, to our union with God through our union with Christ, and to our unity with one another in Christ. Okay, so this is a really, I love the way this answer is structured because it founds the unity of the communion of saints, not on um, the, the one-to-one binary unity between Christians, but what? The, uni- the unity of the Trinity. Um, the, 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 uh, the unity of the three persons within the one being of God. Um, we worship the unity, as the Athanasian Creed, as the Athanasian Creed says, um, and so uh, the, the reference point for communion is the Trinity. Now, how are we brought into that communion? Through union with Christ. So it's by being made one with Christ that we are brought up into the unity of the Trinity, and it is through our unity with Christ that we have any unity with one another. And I think this is a really important point to make clear because I think for a lot of American Christians in particular, um, following a very, you know, kind of American way of thinking, right? Well, here's one. What makes you a citizen of this nation? Yeah, birth, uh, you know, naturalization, those kinds of things, right? Um, But I think there's a higher sense in which citizen can be used, right? There are people who were born in the United States but aren't really citizens in the proper sense, right? I think there are there are those who certainly don't exercise good citizenship, right? <laughs> and, and therefore really can't be called a citizen in any, um, um, they might be called a citizen in the objective sense, but not in a, not in a more subjective sense. Um, we could also say something like, um, you know, it's not that you happen to uh, be a reader of the Constitution that makes you a citizen, but what? That that you're on board, right? Like that that you uh, that you believe that it is kind of the document which which secures your rights. Um, so there's a lot going on here, but I think that the the main thing is that um, many American Christians in particular have this idea that oh well, so I agree with all that these Christians think and teach, and therefore I am one with them. And in fact, the the way that Christian unity is forged is through union with Christ. Um, and I actually think that the way that Christian unity in the deeper sense will be forged going into the future is through our collective union in Christ. Um, that that will mean more than all the divisions that are there. Um, and so uh, that's, a, that's a kind of a hopeful note, right? I think that's really the reality of it. That's, and that's why the church is one, actually. Um, is not because we all happen to agree, but because we are all one in Christ. Question 102, what is the communion of saints? The communion of saints is the fellowship of all those in heaven and on earth who are united in Christ as one body through one spirit in holy baptism. Okay, so here's, here's another thing where it's just one more little twist on this, which is that the communion of saints is the fellowship of all those in heaven and on earth who are united in Christ as one body. So this would seem to be indicating something very similar to the definition of the church in the previous section. Um, but... Uh, it's, it's just another clarifying statement uh, that's meant to say um, that, that the communion of the saints um, is simply those in heaven and on earth. So actually, that should be quite a groundbreaking thing. I mean, I think for a lot of people, they think about the church as simply being those who happen to be alive. And I think for Christians through the centuries, they've all pretty much said, look, no, the, 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 the church is both the living and the dead. Um, so is the communion of saints in that, in that sense. Um, 
and again, I don't want to I don't want to start drawing Venn diagrams about what you know what the relationship between the church and the community of saints are. Um, they are often used interchangeably, right? Um, but there's a, there's I just want to say there's a bit of a deeper sense in which the communion of saints is used. All right. Question one of three: How do you participate in the communion of the saints? I live as a member of the communion of saints through faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit by gathering to worship God with my fellow Christians, by praying for and encouraging one another, and by coming to one another's aid in times of trouble, sickness, or grief. I love this answer because it's it's you know how do you participate in the communion of saints? Um, and and the first answer is this: through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so you can't miss that one. You've got to say through faith in Jesus Christ. And I, I believe that it's, it's kind of a double, a double meaning here. Um, faith in the work of the Holy Spirit and through the work of the Holy Spirit. So we both believe the Holy Spirit is, is at work and we also understand that the Holy Spirit uh, is what um, cements our participation in the communion of saints. And that's actually absolutely right, isn't it? Right? How are you and I sanctified? But by the Holy Spirit. Um, by gathering to worship God, so it does the whole. Does the community of saints have a visible aspect? Absolutely, it's in these gatherings um, with my fellow Christians. Which, by the way, I mean, I don't want to don't want to make this um, make too too much of this. But look, the reality of it is that the church is gathered entire in worship in gatherings like this. So by that I mean that both the living and the dead are joined together. Um, and that's something we need to be aware of more and more. The, the, the ancient understanding of the Eucharist is that it gathers the church, both living and dead, in, in one fellowship, in one communion. Um, and I think that's a really important thing. It's why we say, therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, right? Um, it's not just sort of like a nice thing to say before we get started. It's, it's, it's what we believe, right, that the church is gathered together, um, which is a really comforting thought, right, especially if, you know, you're... you're uh, lovely, you know, departed parents or godparents or grandparents were Christians, um, you can know that when you go to the Eucharist, you go in a very real way to be with them in the deepest sense in which you can be with them, which is to be in the communion of, of the holy, the communion of holy things, right? Both those are interchangeable, by the way. Yes. And that's, that's actually something that I would add to it, is that, um, you know, we, we live in a very self-centered society, so when, whenever I try to answer the question of, why should you go to church? Well, my, my tendency is, because it's good for you. Well, okay, but it's also good for the church, right? Um, I will say cleanly to all of you, and I don't think this is, you know, kind of received Anglican doctrine. I think there, there, there are major differences about this, but I will say to you, this is, this is Lee Nelson speaking, not God, <laughs> that... that uh, that we actually bring refreshment to the communion of saints as a whole by our participation in the church's worship. Okay. Um, and and um, that means the church throughout the world. It means the church both the living and the dead. Do I know how that works? Do I know how that functions? No. <laughs> but I will tell you that the church benefits and is built up and, in fact, becomes who she is in the Eucharist um, because that's who the church is, the body of Christ. Right? And they're all related. Um, because they're the same, right? That's the reality, is that the church is the body of Christ, which is Christ, which is, um, and so you go around there. Hello. What? Sorry. <laughs> Can I answer your question? Yeah, 
there, yes, we're all pre-judgment, right? That's kind of the rea- that's definitely the reality. But I think I think simply the understanding that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead indicates that there is a intermediate state, right? Like judgment has not happened yet. In a sense, heaven has not been established yet. In a sense, uh, you know, it has, but not in the sense that Scripture speaks about it, right? Being finally uh, uh, an embodied heaven. And that, that indicates that I think that, um, th- that the dead are in a liminal space, whatever that is, has to be. Um, you know, they've not yet been raised from the dead. Um, are they with God? Maybe. <laughs> we, certainly, we certainly hope that's the case. Like, is there, is there a waiting involved in death? Absolutely. Um, could it be the flash of an eye from our perspective? Sure. Um, but but all that's just to say that I think that we, we jump a little bit too far, right? So, you know, the standard, I'll just say it this way. The thing that I have criticized brothers uh, in the clergy for in our diocese when I go to a funeral is, is just jumping to the gun and saying, well, aren't we all glad that she's with Jesus now and all of that? It's like, well, hold up. Like, we proclaim faith in the resurrection of the dead. Um, is this person with God in the greatest sense that they can be at this point? We, we believe and hope so. Um, but we await something greater, right? We await, we await the resurrection. Um, and so uh, I think that's an important thing to just sort of point out, which is that um, whatever, is, whatever is the case with the dead now, um, there's something greater that we await. And Christians believe this, right? Um, it's kind of the reason that, you know, the ancient church met in catacombs surrounded by dead bodies, and they believed that the dead were with them in their worship, uh, waiting for the day of resurrection, just like they were. Um, it's why churches put churchyards around there, you know, and they'd have, the, they'd have burials right out in the grass. <laughs> and, and why? Because they wanted to be together in that sense. Um, now we put the dead way out in the country somewhere, um, and, uh, and it's, you know, it's a little uncomfortable that we do that. But Christians have not always done that. There's, there's a sense in which they're, they're with us in this, in this place. So, oh yeah, oh I believe so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I think I think the point is that, and the greater point is that um, the kind of the quality of uh, salvation that we await in the resurrection of the dead is an embodied salvation. It's the resurrection of the body. That's that's the that's the hope of the resurrection, right? Is not that we'll be sort of condemned to live in a in a um, in a in a space of death where our body and our soul are separated, but that they'll be joined together again. Um, that's the hope. Um, and so, in the meantime, we wait. All of us, right? We wait for that too, because you know, I don't live in a risen body. I don't live in a resurrected body at this point. I live in a I live in a liminal space too, right? Between um, between worlds as it is. Um, and so um, uh, all of this tends to be rather mysterious. And I think that's another point to make is that it's all very mysterious. Um, but it, it doesn't mean that we should sort of paper over it with kind of um, trite sayings about you know, the dead and, where they, and what their fate is. Um, I, think, I think we need to be a lot more clear about things like the resurrection. But I'll say more about that as we get to the resurrection of the dead section, which is a whole section. Okay. Um, Praying for and encouraging one another. Um, this is to say that, that praying for others uh, and, you know, 
I would again extend that as Father Nelson, not as you know, uh, arbiter of all things Anglican to say, because there is no such thing. Um, that you know, in that sense, um, offering in a in a limited way prayers for the dead is, can be a faithful thing, um, and Christians have believed this for a long for a long time. You'll note that in our own liturgy, in the prayers for the pe- prayers of the people, there's a bit of a fudge on that. It's that we thank God for those who've departed. And some people in the midst of this church will definitely say some prayers for the dead. Um, but they are by no means commanded. But there is some freedom on that, I think. Um, so you don't have to, but you can. That's kind of the way to put it. It would, it would, look, for, it would look like, you know, as we think about, um, you know, the faithful departed, right? And, and, and I would put that qualifier on it. The, the, it would be, it would be um, I mean, I think... John certainly talks about how he's saying, you know, I don't say that you should pray for these um, who are who are um, dead in their trespasses, right? But but for those who are faithful departed, right? Those who remain faithful and steadfast to the end, that would be one qualifier I'd put on it. Um, and I would say as well that that it, it would look something like participation in the communion of saints. It would be something like um, knowing that the dead and, and believing and hoping that they pray for us, um, believing also that we can return those prayers. However, I would simply say this falls into the realm of speculation, right? <laughs> These are those kinds of uh, spaces on the fence where there's kind of some there's some vast disagreement about this. I understand that. I recognize that. No one must, but but some will do that. I mean, C.S. Lewis was a great proponent of saying um, that that he certainly hoped that that the dead could be prayed for um, because you know it would be very sad if they had no one to pray for them, right? <laughs> I think that's kind of. But it's all bound up again. It's bound up in this idea that. If the dead are waiting for something greater, their hopes are not yet fulfilled. Do the dead need prayers? Yes, absolutely. But not in kind of like a purgatory sense of saying like, oh, they're enduring this pain and misery of purgatory and therefore, you know, need our prayers to get them through it. Um, well, no. And, and um, I think that, that even in a sense... I mean, the, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, rightly speaking, is that only the elect enter into purgatory anyway. So it's kind of like you're praying for those who are going to be in heaven anyway. So you, you believe and hope in that. You trust in that. But you're praying that their time in that kind of torment would be short. Um, I think for Anglicans, there's been a way of saying we remember the departed um, in our prayers. Um, and that's just it, um, if, if at all. And there are certainly some who say no. Uh, but there are definitely those who say yes. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, and I, I promise you that, you know, when we get to things like that in the catechism, I will tell you what I think, okay? I'll also tell you where I don't speak for everyone, right? So I hope that helps. And I also recognize that there are people in this church who will disagree with me. And you know what? Because it falls into the category of not something that we can speak, you know, authoritatively about. Great. Like, <laughs> so that's kind of how things work. Um, and, and uh, well, anyway. All right. And by coming to one another's aid in times of trouble, sickness, or grief. Um, so this is, this is in the very identity of the communion of saints to come to one another's aid. Um, and it's a, it's a, a wonderful thing to see. Um, I've been actually personally um, deeply moved by seeing how people have responded to uh, parishioners in need. Um, and how uh, things just tend to work, right? Because people are committed to one another, and, and that's just how it is. Um, 
So that's a big, a big thing. How are the church on earth and the church in heaven joined in worship? Through union with Christ, as celebrated in the sacrament of Holy Communion, the church on earth participates with the church in heaven in the eternal worship of God. And I would actually just echo what Paul says about uh, the Eucharist, uh, the, 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 the body and blood being a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. Um, well, what is that? What is that? A, what is that? A, what is that to say? What does it mean to participate in the body and blood of Jesus? Is it not union with Christ? Okay, so the the living and the dead have union with Christ, and therefore through that union with Christ, union with one another. That's the big truth there, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, getting back to one of these questions on intercession for the dead, you know, it's it's. Uh, if it's to be proper, I think it's always directed through Jesus, right? That we pray for Jesus' grace to be upon those who've departed. Um, so that's just another thought there. Let's move on to the forgiveness of sins. What are sins? Sins are intentions, acts, or failures to act that arise out of my corrupted human nature and fall short of conformity to God's revealed will. Uh, this is a very straight-up biblical answer. It follows from Romans, etc. cetera. Uh, but they are intentions. I love how it's clear. <laughs> Sins start with intentions. It's, you know, how do you know that you've fallen into sin? It's when you've started to plan to sin, right? <laughs> it's, it's all about your intentions. Um, you know, and, uh, as I, you know, I, I, I hate the phrase, the road to hell is paved in good intentions. No, I'm sure that the road to hell is paved in evil intentions, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, and that that's about it. And, and we should remember, too, that no one sins when their will does not act, right? Um, in fact, if you didn't will it, you didn't do it, really. Um, the, the will has to, be, um, has to be active in these things. Um, so intentions matter. Um, I think this is really key. Is an intention different from actually doing it? Sure. Absolutely. Of course. Um, you have a question. It looks very, very impy. <laughs> yeah. You have sins of ignorance. You have sins. Of, you, have, you have things in the law that are um, maybe not sin, right? Like if your if your ox gores another ox, right? What's the penalty in the law? You you have to restore the ox, and you have to kill yours, right? Um, why? Because that's the just outcome, right? That's justice in the biblical sense. It's you lose one, and and you have to kill yours. It means you have to go buy a new one and lose yours, um, because look, your ox was being malevolent. Right, your ox was off the line. That was your fault. Right, you should have had better control of it. Um, but is it to say that that's sinful? Not really. I mean, it, but it is to say that you do owe someone something. Right. So I think that's that's a really. I mean, I want to make that clear: is that not all the provisions of the law are about sin. Um, some of them are about restoring what um, what. Had what had been lost in the midst of just life happening, um, but there are other things in the law where it's like, well, I didn't know what I was doing. But they're never serious. They're never. They can't be as serious as I knew what I was doing and did it. Um, part of it is, you know, and ignorance also depends on a number of, a number of things as well. You know, it's not just like, hey, you know, 
well, I fired my gun into nothing, and I, don't, I didn't know where that bullet was going. And you hit somebody, right? Well, you are culpable, right, because of your, because of your um, the error of firing into nothing and thinking it was going to be you know, nothing. Um, you're definitely culpable. And, you know, if you, if you shoot out a window or something, you are responsible for replacing the window, right? Of course. Um, but to call that murder is a bit different, right? Um, and I think so Christians have, have a way of being thoughtful about these things. And I think, you know, here, I'll just I'll lay, lay all my cards on the table. We had the big Kyle Rittenhouse verdict this past week. I think a number of people were not thinking like Christians when they responded to it, right, in both directions. Um, some were saying, oh, he should have, you know, spent the rest of his life in prison. Well, whatever he did, it was pretty clear it wasn't murder. Um, it may have been, look, it was definitely extremely irresponsible, right? Um, extremely uh, at the point of being immoral to do what he did, right? Um, to be there in the first place, right? And some people might say, but maybe not. Um, I, I think there's levels of culpability for that, right? Um, but I think to just sort of go full tilt in one direction and say, well, he's a murderer and, should, and a terrorist and should wind up in prison for the rest of I mean, I think that's just unthoughtful. Um, so just, just a thought there is we have to have a nuance about these things. You can't just sort of jump on the bandwagon and say, well, here's what I think. Um, well, no, because, uh, because intention matters. What your intent is matters. Um, and you might not agree with it, right? That's the other part of it, too. You might say, well, you know, <laughs> self-defense, my rear. Well... But it doesn't matter what your intention would be. It matters what the, what the actor's intention is. Um, so all that matters, and I think that's a really key, uh, key point. Um, so they are both intentions, acts, or failures to act. So it's, it's both the intention and the act and the failure to act. Um, and so those sins of omission are also important as well. Um, I've told you the story about hearing a confession once in this... this uh, particular penitent was saying, well, I can't think of anything that I've done wrong. And I just said, um, well, what haven't you done? And then it was just like, <laughs> there's a lot of things I haven't done and I feel really guilty about it. Well, okay, that's, that's really great. Now, like, now, we can, now we can get to work. But, uh, but that, that's often how we think about sin. We say what we've done and not what we haven't done. Um, but in, in the confession, of course, on Sundays, we say those things, the done and left undone. Um, what, where do sins arise? Well, out of my corrupted human nature, and they fall short of conformity to God's revealed will. Um, and that's really another point is, sin is not just what makes me feel bad or what, or what fills me with guilt. It actually is uh, an act or a failure to act that is short of conformity to God's revealed will, as revealed in Scripture, actually. Um, so, a great example is, you might do something and you might say, I feel really awful that I did that. But the moment you start to share it with somebody, they say, why? You, you did exactly the right thing. Um, just because your conscience is troubled by it does not mean it's sin. Um, now, however, if you know it's right and you don't do it, it's sin. So there's, a, there's an important point there, too, is that you do have a duty to listen to your conscience. Um, and I think that's, that's a big key. Um, how does God respond to human sin? All sin is opposed to the righteousness of God and is therefore subject to God's holy condemnation. Yet God in his mercy offers me forgiveness and salvation from sin through his son, Jesus Christ, the only Savior. So the Christian, a Christian must have a, a sense of God's righteousness being opposed to sin and coming into direct conflict with sin. 
um, in the form of judgment and condemnation, holy condemnation. Um, you and I stand condemned before God um, without grace, um, but, but with grace, by grace, um, by uh, the forgiveness and salvation that's offered in Jesus, um, we stand free. So that's a wonderful, that's the wonderful part. That's the wonderful thing of the gospel. How does God forgive your sins? By virtue of Christ's atoning sacrifice in which I put my trust, God sets aside my sin, accepts me, and adopts me as his child and heir in Jesus Christ. Loving me as his child, he forgives my sins whenever I turn to him in repentance and faith. And this is all, of course, wrapped up in the understanding of union with Christ. You know, the reason that you and I are children of God is not because he likes us, particularly. It's because we've been joined to Christ, his son, and are therefore his children, right? Adopted into the fellowship of God in that way. Um, and I think a lot of people get this wrong. They just sort of say, oh, well, Jesus is so nice and he made me one of his and all, you know, and, and that's true, right? But it's, but it's through this deep union that the Christian has with Christ um, that, that salvation has worked. Um, and I think that, that, that goes very deep. I mean, in Scripture, it goes very deep. It's, it's uh, Paul saying things like, I've been crucified with Christ. Um, uh, Paul makes regular reference to how the, the, the Christian has been buried, right, died, um, and has been raised to newness of life. And, and literally been incorporated into the, into the uh, crucified and risen body of Jesus. And that's, that's the Christian identity right there. That's it, right? Like, full stop, it's Jesus. <laughs> so if you want to add anything in, like, well, I'm one of these kinds of Christians, it's like, that isn't a thing. All right, I'm just going to say it. It's not a thing, right? Um, now, if you want to take lesser attributes and build them up to the point where you're drawing attention to yourself, there's a word for that. It's called pride. So, so stay away from it. Just, just don't put qualifiers on these things. I'm a Christian, right? I love, I love the, uh, the great Roman saint, uh, St. Alban, who was martyred very early on in the, probably the third century. But um, he, uh, he actually was evangelized as a Roman soldier. And, uh, and of course, the, the persecution that he was operating... It was a very quick conversion. Apparently, he he, uh, he was converted by the ones that he was going after, and and, uh, and so he changed his clothes with uh, with his um, with the one who evangelized him, and he he professes. You know, All you really need to know is that my name is Alban, and I'm a Christian, and they they killed him um, with a sword. So uh, you know these stories of that's all you got to know is that. My name is Lee, and I'm a Christian, right? That's why when we baptize, we say uh, in the back of the church to the parents, name this child. Or if it's an adult, we say, what is your name? And they're to respond. Um, because it's, it's to say, whatever your name has been, you're being made a member of Christ. Um, so that's a, that's a big, big thing. All right. Uh, God sets aside my sins, accepts me, and adopts me as his child and heir in Jesus Christ. So this is to say that um, we're both children of God and also heirs. Paul goes at great length in just about every letter he writes to say, and if, if a child, then an heir, things like that. Um, well, which is in the nature of things, is it not? I mean, this is the very language of biblical covenant. 
So the language of biblical covenant is this. Everything that I have is yours, God says, and everything that you have is mine. And this is actually made perfectly uh, uh, manifest in the incarnation. God giving himself to us and um, we human beings giving ourselves to God. Um, That can't be missed. The, The incarnation is the perfection of the covenant. Um, and particularly the crucifixion as well, and, and the death and resurrection of Jesus, bring that to full completion. Um, N.T. Wright points out, and I think rightly, that um, it's, it's the death of Jesus on the cross which draws that old covenant to an end, but also completes it. So, you know, how do you, how do you end a covenant? Well, you die. That's the only way, right? And who has to die? Well, one or the other. But in this case, who dies? Both. Like God and man in one person. So it's a perfect fulfillment of the covenant. Um, but what happens in it? Well, everything that God has becomes ours. Um, and everything that we have becomes his. Um, and, and that's what um, comes into sharp focus, not only in baptism, but in, in feasts like today, the feast of Christ the King, right? It's, it's to say um, Christ the high priest, who is high priest by virtue of his both, of his divinity and his humanity, um, establishes a new humanity in the church and in the kingdom, which is subject to him, but which also shares in his kingdom, right? Shares in all the things that are his. Okay, I'm, I'm getting off track though. Um, how should you respond to God's forgiveness? Trusting in God's continual forgiveness, I should live in continual thanks, praise, and obedience to him. As I have been loved and forgiven by God, so I should love and forgive those who sin against me. Okay, so there's two parts to this. Um, to trust in God's continual forgiveness, we should live in continual thanks, praise, and obedience. I think a lot of people uh, tend to think that um, responding to God's forgiveness is just about thanks or just about praise and not about obedience. I think we need to say clearly that to be a Christian is to be one who lives in obedience to God. Does this mean you'll always be successful in obedience to God? No. Um, But does mean that obedience is is a precur- is is necessary to um, to living a life of forgiveness, um, just as much as it is. You know, look, the reality is you, you have people in your life who've who've sinned against you time and again, and you know you're not so crazy about reopening a relationship with them, right? Or or getting back to the way things were. But what do we find? You can forgive them, right? But as long as they're, in a sense, disobedient towards you, right? And the best, the best image of this would be marriage, right? Like, <laughs> you know, I forgive my wife or my wife forgives me more often than that. Um, and I continue to rebel against her. I continue to, to gratify my own will instead of, instead of looking to her good. Um, you know, am I living in that forgiveness? Or am I abusing it? I'm abusing it. Um, so I think we need to remember this, that, that obedience is wrapped up in forgiveness. It really is. Um, is, it, is it a necessary precursor to, to forgiveness? No. Just as, you know, forgiving others, is, there's, their, their, their future behavior is not a condition upon our forgiveness being offered. Right? That's something that we, we stand in control of. Um, but it is to say that, that um, to live in that forgiveness is to live in obedience. All right. And as I have been loved and forgiven by God, so I should love and forgive those who sin against me. 
Um, there's a subtle difference between the Lord's Prayer and the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. They are concurrent activities, right? We forgive and, or, or uh, we, we ask for the forgiveness of God as we're forgiving others, okay? Luke's Gospel puts it a little bit different way. Forgive us our, forgive us our sins or forgive us our trespasses because we always forgive those who sin against us. That's a little bit different. <laughs> but it's the same idea, right? It's, it's that it's also tied up in the, in the parable of the forgiven uh, steward, um, right? He goes out and he, he owes what in biblical terms is a bajillion dollars times 10. Um, and that's really the term for it. It's, it's an unbelievable amount of money such that you can't even imagine it. Uh, and then he goes out and shakes down other servants for 50 bucks here and there. Um, you know, it's just horrid. It's just horrid, unbelievably horrid. Um, and uh, and that's, that's what often happens. We, we go around in this lack of forgiveness. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean we should have a restored relationship with everyone who's ever sinned against us? No, not at all, actually. <laughs> no, 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 no. Hopefully, maybe, if, if God wills reconciliation, then thanks be to God for that. But it does not mean putting up with bad behavior. It does not mean all, any of those things. What it means is simply this. You owe me a debt, and I'm going to drop it. I wish I could have justice. i got to let go of it. Right? Forgiveness is a surrender of an offense. Um, and this is what God does in redemption. He lets go of justice. Because what's the just penalty for our sin? death, right? He lets go of it, and what happens? He surrenders to it, actually. And he surrenders to it on the cross. He, he lets us do what we want with him. I mean, that's probably the most, I mean, I would just say this, it's the most miraculous thing about the crucifixion, is that he does not protest, he does not fight against it, he does not try to get out of it, he does not do any of those things, he just offers himself up. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Holding on to grudges and resentment um, are certainly forms of a lack of forgiveness. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think we should say a lot more about resentment than we do in the church, right? Because resentment is not only a lack of forgiveness, but it, it's, it's um, well, it's poisonous, right? It's, yeah, yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> yeah. This, you know, the 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 uh, the twelve steppers talk about um, how resentment is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die of it. I think that's exactly right. Um, resentment is a kind of murder. To put it simply, that we continually practice. Yeah, we say, you know, life in this world would be, it would be a lot better if she didn't exist. You know, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd feel a lot better about X, Y, Z if they were dead, you know. And it, if we were just honest, that's what we'd say. Murder. Yeah, I think it's just murder. Like, Jesus certainly seems to indi indicate that that's the case, right? Um, that when you start to discount your brother, right, in that way, 
calling him Raka as a fool or, um, you know, I think that is. I think it's a form of murder. I mean, look, nobody murders anybody that they're not resentful about, really. I mean, that's just not how things work. Um, for the most part, it's about carrying out resentment to its logical end, which is murder. And look, intention matters. So like, oh, sure, you're not going to go murder them, but your intentions are complicated, right, about this. And maybe not so. Um, so I think that's a really key thing. What's, what's the answer? Just drop it, move on. Um, there's nothing you can do about it, right? You can't make them a better person. You can't, you can't get them to act properly. Like, <laughs> just let go of it. Like, that's all you can do. Um, so that's the word for, for uh, forgiveness that I think is really important. You know, Steve Waters, who is responsible for uh, a lot of translation work in, in um, South Asia, particularly in Nepal and in Bhutan, in Nepal, the word that, they, that he has translated forgiveness to is the word that in Nepal means uh, to let a fish off the hook, which I just love. It's like, I could eat you, but I'm not going to, right? That's a, that's a good word for forgiveness, right? You know, I'm due justice, but I'm not going to go after it, right? You owe me, but I'm dropping it. I'm letting go of it. Um, that's... That's the language that I think we should use, right? And, it, and it's saying, I'm not going to pursue, I'm not going to pursue the debt any further, right? I'm not going to go after you. Like, that's it. Um, well, and here's the thing, guys. I mean, the, the reality of it is that banks do this all the time, right? It's the reason that our credit card fees are so high, right? It's because we're paying for all the others who defaulted on their credit cards, right? Um, well, because it's, it's really smart business to let go of debts and realize, like, we're, we cannot get you to pay it. There's no way for us to do that. So we just have to let go of it. Um, maybe sell it, you know. <laughs> but but it's, it's, you got to let go of it. You got you to gotta just say, no, we can't do it anymore. This is, this is it's, it's killing us as a business to have to go after people who are never going to pay us. Um, so that's just a, a thought there. All right. What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved gift of his love, mercy, and help which he freely offers to us, who because of our sin deserve only condemnation. I love this answer. I'm fully behind this answer because we live in a time in which people speak of grace without talking about help. Grace is merely love and mercy. Um, and that is a complete betrayal of how the scriptures speak about grace, how the church's tradition has spoken about grace, um, and, uh, and we need to do better than that. <laughs> I, I think that there are a number of people who are very, uh, and understandably, caught up in this way of preaching grace without preaching sanctification or help because um, they've, they've really been hurt by churches that have taken a rather moralistic or legalistic stance. So they say, well, no, grace is not about um, perfection or about, um, about help. It's about just overlooking things, right? Well, I think that's wrong, and I, I'll, I'll tell you why it's wrong. It's because it, it actually puts a limit on what God actually does through grace. It says, well, you know, the only thing that God really does about sin is just sort of like overlook it, let go of it. Well, that's not it, not entirely. Um, the, the, the great phrase that I just, you know, you just can't get over is when Thomas Aquinas says that um, grace perfects nature, 
um, draws it to its fulfillment, draws it to its uh, what what I would actually say in philosophical terms is to its to its final end or its telos. Um, meaning that uh, apart from grace, we can't actually be remade and refashioned in the image of God, um, which is what salvation is all about. It's not about sort of being eternally ignored, right? Um, and who we are, really and truly. It's about God knowing who we are and yet still saving us, yet still um, of his mercy and grace transforming us. I think the reason that a lot of churches have let go of transformation is they don't want to be seen as legalistic. Well, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is you descend into total chaos and no one knows what holiness even looks like anymore. They stop believing in transformation. Um, and, you know, uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll be really blunt with you. Um, I have had some interactions with people who've been of this strain and it's, it's pretty disastrous what winds up happening. If not to them, then to the people who listen to it. Um, so uh, one of our Anglican seminaries was run by a very famous uh, <laughs> antinomian who would, who, who would certainly deny the claim, right? Um, he would say, no, 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 that's not me. But look, when you start to preach like, um, you know, things like God doesn't actually care about your sanctification. He just cares about saving you. Um, and so don't preach any message that has moral exhortation in it at all, right? Well, what happens? Well, he had students who were trading their wives. This is like in an Orthodox seminary. Um, so, no. Like, bad theology is bad. <laughs> it's bad for the people who hear it, and it's bad for the people who do it. Like, it's bad. Um, across the board, bad. Um, and just because you seem to be blissfully unaffected by it doesn't mean that others won't be. Um, so, <laughs> there's, there's sort of the truth is that, uh, you know, uh, I think there are a number of, of uh, Christian preachers who... who uh, undertake this line, they happen to be um, rather upstanding people, uh, but this message doesn't help the hearer at all, and I just say that really strongly. Um, so help matters, which he freely offers to us, who because of our sin deserve only condemnation. So, you know, you think about it, what's the opposite of condemnation? Restoration, rehabilitation, it's that, that kind of language. And it's actually why I think at the heart of the gospel, one of the things that, that I'm, I've been really interested in as, as of late is how Christians should think about um, uh, uh, the, the penal system in particular. Um, how should we think about um, criminal justice, right? Um, you know, just the words that we use for prisons, right, are, are, are indicative of what we think, right? Um, they're, you know, it's either incarceration or it's in um, a penitentiary, right? Or it's in a, um, what's the other word that's a little bit softer? Um, correction facility, right? Oh, goodness. Um, I actually think there's room for Christians to, to think something about what rehabilitative justice looks like, especially for those who are nonviolent criminals, right? Um, who are, uh, you know, who, you know, in the, in the deepest sense, can be rehabilitated, right? Um, and we should think about what does it look like for God to be a God of grace in the, in the midst of, and even for those who are violent, right? What does that look like? Um, and I, I think our, our justice system is, is largely confused because we think about it as, um, as penitence, right, in the penitentiary sense, 
or correction, which let's just be honest, if it's a correctional institution, it's not working very well. <laughs> like, um, or rehabilitation, which you know I think means getting back in society and, and not uh, committing crimes. Well, that's not, that shouldn't be the goal. If we're Christians, we should think about how do we actually restore people, how do we work with God to restore people to wholeness, right? Or um, get them there in the first place. So I think that's a really, a really key just kind of uh, application note there just to talk about. For what purpose does God give you grace? God gives me grace in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, redemption from sin's power, healing of sin's effects, and growth in holiness to my final transformation into the likeness of Christ. And I love this. This is what it's all about, right? It's all about final transformation um, into the likeness of Christ. To be made in the, in the likeness and image of God means that you're made to be like Jesus. Um, perfect, right? This is why Jesus says, you must be perfect, uh, he's, he means every word. And it's not a sort of like shame on you for not being perfect. No, it's you must be perfect. Um, the quality of salvation is, is all tied up in this. I mean, I love when the Brazos fellows study Athanasius on the Incarnation because one of the key points that Athanasius makes in the Incarnation is like, God could have just written off the debt. He really could have. He could have just said, nope, cancel it. <laughs> but what does he do? goes way beyond that, like way beyond a cancellation. Um, and, and it's on the cross that we see the quality of salvation, how, how magnificent it is, this restoration. Okay, so there you are. Um, so grace is about, at the end of the day, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Um, it's about healing from sin. Um, and I think healing is one of the best words that we can use about sin. Um, I, th I have come to the deep conclusion that um, a lot of us not only sin because it's in our broken nature, but because um, there is something broken in us, like that wasn't how we were born, but came into us um, in in really terrible and and um, and uh, well, yeah, just terrible ways. And so, part of part of uh, of transformation is, is being healed of those things that went awry. Um, you know, and, and I, I've seen this in, you know, one of the things I, I'm really concerned about is the way that we speak about um, uh, victims in society, right? You know, look, all of us can claim a victim status. Um, what's really key is how do we think about what it looks like to be healed? Because if we just hang on to that victim status forever and ever and ever, then we'll just sort of get to like it. Like, oh, you can't tell me what to do or you can't do this to me because I'm a victim. You know, it's like, well, okay. But what does it look like to, to go beyond that? What does it look like to be healed of trauma? What does it look like to be healed of, um, of the ways in which other people have sinned against you? Um, I believe that God can do that. I think that any gospel that doesn't proclaim that is, 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 is short. Um, so hear that too. Can you earn God's grace? No, God gives his grace freely and enables me to receive it. Everything I do for God should be in response to his love and grace made known in Christ. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we love because he first loved us. This is the thing that everybody's got to get about grace. You don't get grace because you asked for it. You don't get grace because you're good enough. Um, you get grace because God decides to give it to you. And, and not just decides, but freely and lovingly bestows it upon you.
thanks be to God for that, um, which, which is the heart of the gospel, right? I mean, I think, I think there's, there's a very real way in which, at least in traditional terms, right, to say that uh, we must take the first step towards grace is heresy. It's called semi-Pelagianism. Um, you, you know, Pelagianism is a complete rejection of grace. It's say, apart from grace, you can do anything you want, right? You're just, you're just weak-willed, right? That's all it really is. And, but semi-Pelagianism is, is, you might say, not as bad and yet as bad to the core, which is you have to ask for it. The, the, the teaching of the church throughout the, throughout the centuries has been no. Um, God gives his grace to those whom he chooses to give grace to. And by the way, you know, as Jesus says, he sends his reign on the just and the unjust alike. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's a kind of universal grace, right? Which is the reason that we're not all kind of spinning off into, into the solar system or into outer space. Um, there's kind of grace of the, of the, of the natural law, so to speak. Um, but there's also the prevenient grace that precedes our conversion and, and becoming Christians. There's actual grace, which preserves us in trouble and, and things like that. And so I think we, you know, we really do need to delineate between the types of grace as well. That's really key um, so that we can understand them and, uh, and, and uh, see where they're active, right? Um, so there's that. I think that's, that's a, really key, a really key thing to think about. Uh, but it is certainly, um, it's a response um, um, to the love of Jesus is really what God's grace is about. Um, has to be. So the great, the great, uh, you know, the great kind of um, the, the kind of classic debate in semi-Pelagianism is between um, the semi-Pelagians and, and uh, Prosper of Aquitaine, who's one of my favorite writers, and, and he's the one who says lex orandi, lex credendi, which wasn't exactly what he says, but he, his argument against the semi-Pelagianism against the semi-Pelagians is this: if the semi-Pelagians are right, why do we pray for the pagans in church? They should just get their act together and ask for God to help them. Otherwise, that's his. That's his answer. He's like the law. And he says basically the law of our praying establishes the law of our believing. And likewise, it's to say the way we pray indicates what we believe, and we believe that without God's grace, people can't respond. Um, and so I think that's that's really the key, uh, the key way to put it, and the key way to just to just sort through it. Um, I'm convinced, actually, that uh, this is this is a this is a really needed message today in the church, um, because what happens if we think that we got grace for ourselves, and that that grace doesn't really have very high quality to it? We sort of come to faith on our own terms, don't we? We sort of say, like, I'm coming to believe, and and uh, I'm going to sort of keep doing what I want, <laughs> and <laughs> and instead. Instead, um, no, no, no. Uh, grace is freely offered, um, and uh, and our, our response to it is always indicative, or should always be indicative of our um, desire to um, to sacrifice all um, before God, especially our, our little bugaboos here and there, and our, <laughs> our particularities and all those things. We have to let go of it. Um, 
I think, I think the church does a great disservice to people by saying otherwise, saying like, you know, oh, no, no, come as you are, like, hold on to all those things. Am I getting close to time? Yes, I am. One, one more question. Let's just go through it because I think we're so close. Um, we'll actually just finish the section out. Is God's grace only for your religious or spiritual life? No, God wants to redeem every aspect of my life, and his grace in Christ is at work in all of it. Um, so here's another just, you know, huge statement, which is that, you know, we're very good in, in these modern times of compartmentalizing our lives, aren't we? It's like, I've got my home life, I've got my work life, I've got my church life, and hopefully the people in those areas will never talk to each other. Like, no. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in a, in a place like Waco, it's hard to do, but um, it's, it's hard to do anyway. I mean, you, you cannot live a compartmentalized life. I think integration is the key, actually. Um, you know, to have a fully integrated life is, is essential. Okay, does God give grace only to Christians? No, God's common grace can be seen in his provision for all people. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. However, he shows his saving grace by granting salvation to those who place their faith in Christ. Now, I will say this. This is one of the ways in which we can speak of God's universal grace, you know, God giving grace to all, while simultaneously giving grace to the few. Um, and it has to be this way. Um, uh, well, not only for that reason, but, but, but because if everybody got grace, then what would it be? Got grace at that level. If everyone got saving grace, then what, what would be the quality of that grace? <laughs> Nothing. So what am I saved from? <laughs> like, grace? <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that's, 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 that's not it. Um, uh, we, we really, and, and again, this is where, again, I think Augustus, uh, Athanasius is right. The, the quality of that salvation, the quality of that grace is shown forth in Jesus Christ and him crucified. I don't think that you can have a compelling understanding of grace apart from the cross. So, the, and this is why Paul says, you know, let it not be that I, that I preach anything but Christ and him crucified. Um, I think that we are in a place in the church where uh, cheap grace is, is, uh, is, is peddled out daily uh, without the cross, without repentance, without obedience. It's peddled out to the masses and everybody has it. And look, there's a reality that I think this question is answering, which is, does everyone receive God's grace? In a sense, Yes. You know, again, the fact you're not flying out in outer space, you know, the fact that the fact that you exist at all is grace, okay? But when we talk about what it means to be saved and sanctified and helped in our sin and, and uh, forgiven, oh, that's, that's grace of a different sort. And that is not the domain of every human being. Um, and look, we know that, right? Because look at all the people who aren't, who aren't being sanctified, who are actively running away from it. Like, that's proof, right? Like, so, and it shouldn't surprise us, it shouldn't shock us. In fact, it should, it should, it should lead us to greater and greater thanks. So just, just a thought as we close out. Okay, next week we'll pick up with that next section, which is the resurrection of the dead, right? Nope, yep, I think it is. Okay, so that will be next week. And then, so that you know, because, you know, Sunday after Thanksgiving is a bit, uh, you know, tough, but it's Advent, so... As soon as we finish off the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting, we have an extended treatment of the sacraments. So, you know, 
hang on for that. If you're going home or going somewhere, it'll all be podcasted so you can listen in uh, when that time comes. Thank you.